0: From 1991 to 1994, I was the Youth Development Officer for the Presbyterian Church in the Republic of Ireland, and uh, I was based in Dublin, uh, lived down in Shankill, where you could have an address, Falls Road Shankill, which would have been a good one, sadly it wasn't mine. Um, And uh, I used to get off, Janice was living in London at the time, so I was uh, single and I could go across there after a few weeks' work and take a few days off. But basically, Dublin was mine, and we went out to concerts, and we had a great time. It's a mystery, Christopher. Um, so anyway, I'll try and carry on. Um, so I remember I used to get the Dart, uh, the area transit, on uh, in the morning, and I would go in and I would cross over the Leffey and many mornings I would stand on the Liffey and look down. Uh, both sides and think ah, Dublin this is the place to be at this point it was a thriving city and um, I loved being a part of it and one day my office was in Lower Abbey in uh, Ormond Key and Scott's church and uh, I used to come out and go for lunch and uh, as I went out on Tuesdays and Thursdays Paddy was there Paddy was signing in the girls for the aerobics class that would take place in the church hall And over time, you got to chat, etc., etc. But one uh, lunchtime, my friend Chris came in, and uh, we were going to go out for lunch. And as we went out past Paddy, Paddy says, Well, lads, out into the flowing tide, the flowing tide. And we thought, you know, Paddy just doesn't sign in the aerobics, girls. He's a philosophical boy. So, Chris being a songwriter, and me at the time dabbling in kind of poetry, we thought, the flowing tide. What an image of O'Connell Street on a lunchtime when you're, you know, brilliant, brilliant. So about a week later we were going north in the car with uh, another friend who was driving and Chris and I were comparing notes in the back, I think. And I was saying, well, did you write the song? Did you write the song? And he says, well, I've got a few ideas. And did you write the poem? And I says, yeah, I've got the first verse. And, and the guy that was driving said, well, what are you writing about? And we said, well, we were coming out last week. And Paddy said, out under the flowing tide, guys, under the flowing tide. And we thought, what a great image. And the guy starts laughing on the front. And he says, guys, the flowing tide, it's the pub across the road from your office. <laughs> Aren't you all so pleased <laughs> that I didn't know and wasn't aware? Although I do remember going down in one afternoon finding a TV when we beat Wales at rugby, so I was in the flowing tide once. But it was a good image for me, and it's an image that, that we read the poem in our uh, prayers this morning, this idea of Jesus uh, being where the people who needed him were, not where maybe uh, some of us are. And it's a real challenge to us, I think, to ask ourselves as we do this journey that we start it really around Christmas where we said, and I keep saying it and I want us to get it in our heads, we're not taking a route from Bethlehem to Calvary. We're going on this road and almost as we go on this road, particularly now as we get into Mark chapter 2 and as we go on into Mark chapter 3, what we're going to find is all the things that got Jesus nailed to the cross as we pass them by. And it's almost like we're going to this treasure hunt or a, a forfeits and we'll come to these meetings where Jesus will do things or say things that the Pharisees almost hold the nail up. And they're ready to hammer the nail in. And we as those who follow Jesus or claim to be followers of Jesus have got to take that road with him. We've got to take the road to see what was it that got him nailed. What were the things that he was passionate about? What was it that Jesus came to do? So when we get through the cross and out the end of the resurrection into the new world where then the Holy Spirit is poured out. What we're called to do are the things that Jesus did in those Journeys towards that journey, towards the cross. And it's interesting because we uh, find here in, in chapter 2 and verse 7, do we not? Um, why does this fellow talk like this? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? In this incident where somebody comes and takes the roof off, eh, is there something in this for us? Um, somebody takes the roof off, literally. And uh, it doesn't seem to be as expensive to fill it in those days. And it seems as if it was pretty easy to do that. I mean, you needed the spade and you needed to do a bit of work. But it seemed easier and cheaper to repair than it is to do a church in 2010. Would be one of the exegesis that you would get from this passage. But in this story where this guy comes and Jesus not only heals him but forgives him. And the Pharisees are immediately saying blasphemy. What is it? What is it when he's brought before the religious leaders in Pilate... Near the end of his life. What is it he's condemned for? These very words that we find as early as chapter 2 and verse 7. He's nailed. Right at this point when Jesus says to this guy, your sins are forgiven. Now again, there's two particular readings of this. My reading always was that it's your sins are forgiven. Um, but uh, Chad Myers in this political looking at Jesus he would talk about debt Codes in other words in order to be Born like this guy was born or For something to happen like this in the day that They they were in it would seem That it was some debt you were paying From some other time not from some Other life but maybe your parents had done Something or there was something that was being Handed down to you it was a debt that you were taken on. And what Jesus does here, as well as for, literally forgiving his sins, he makes him human and whole again. And he takes away the debt that this man's been carrying so that he can find himself, just as the leper did at the end of chapter 1, back into society again. And it was only the Pharisees that could declare those things. So as well as them being theologically pure and holy here, Jesus is also, again, just encroaching on their authority, on their power, and who they think they might be. But imagine if you have that choice. I think it was Jay John that I spent a bit of time with once uh, in Nottingham. And, uh, or It was a friend of J. John's who worked closely with him. And he said he was in a classroom of 15-year-olds. And he was doing Mark chapter 2, and he said to them, What would you rather have done? What is the one thing in your... If you could ask Jesus for one thing, what would it be? And he said he was amazed that in that class, the vast majority said they would have liked to be forgiven. Not to be better footballers or more intelligent or not to be rich or whatever else. But even these teenagers, now we're talking a wee bit of time ago, but they were saying we would like to be forgiven. Jesus had this ability to come because of who he was and just say your sins are forgiven. But as he says it, it seems to be wholly good, this ministry. It seems to be about healing humans. And you would say to yourself, how can people find fault with this? The Pharisees already in chapter two are beginning to find fault, and they're already plotting what might happen at the end of all this. Another interesting thing is I've, uh, Alan Gaston, you know, out there in Peter Martzburg, he he seems to love Mark he comes on to me nearly every week and says oh it must be great to get paid to read Mark and I suppose technically I am if I could find the time to read Mark um, but uh, it's, a, it's a fascinating book and it's fascinating the more you get a chance to, to look into it and one of the other things that came out as I was reading a, an array of uh, uh, commentaries on this is the, the word that Mark uses for crowd I'm, I'm not good at the Greek even worse at the Hebrew I failed it four times um, but uh, the only Hebrew I really know is um, Why ye he, ye boy ye, ye ho, ye ho. <laughs> Now you see I put in there the most used word in the Old Testament And you didn't realise you're laughing at me But why ye he, ye boy ye, ye ho, ye ho Means and it came to pass Ye boy ye, ye ho, ye ho. I don't know much Hebrew I don't know much Hebrew I know less Greek but when these guys are uh, throwing it out you kind of think I wish I'd taken a little bit more time but apparently the word that's used here for crowd and mark and mark uses it 38 times from what I'm told is oculus it sounds like a Scottish word And it's not the word laos that most people would use. In fact, laos is used 2,000 times in the scriptures. And the, the commentators would say this is because what he's saying here is that this crowd are the marginalized. That's the word used for the marginalized, the confused. The ones who aren't at the center of things. The ones who are the outcasts. And for Mark, we're seeing already, are we not, that the people around Jesus, crowding around Jesus, always around Jesus. It was interesting singing that uh, song just before we came to this where Jesus draws us to himself. The people that Jesus was drawing to himself were very much the marginalized and the outcasts. And we really shouldn't be too surprised at that, should we? Because Mark, chapter four, when he reads the scroll in the synagogue, he says, "I've come for uh, to let the blind see and release the captives." And the marginalised are very much part of that text, in Isaiah, that he read. When we come to the end of his ministry and the end of Matthew, and he talks about, you know, you go out there and who feeds. Uh, the people who are hungry who looks after those who are thirsty we see again it's the marginalized that he's interested in when we come to the Beatitudes whether we look at the more spiritual Matthew or the more maybe literal look we see that uh, the poor the marginalized are the ones who he claims to be blessed which is another mystery that we might look at at another time Jesus is interested in the poor and the marginalized and it made me think this week and we come to it at the end of this where he says to the Pharisees in the final insult or the final criticism, the final judgment. He says, I'm not here for the well. I'm here for the sick. The doctor doesn't come to those who are well. The doctor comes to those who are sick. And it made me ask myself, are we drawn people to Jesus from that kind of constituency? As we sit here with, yes, all kinds, and I keep going back to every week, but I'm going to go back to every week until we have the kingdom come. As we look in very different places, as we look to academia, as we look to commerce, but then as we look to the lower orbo and uh, many of the problems that are there, and tonight uh, Ken Humphreys and Claire, if she can get a babysitter, are going to come and talk about their lives in the lower Orbo and what the needs of the lower Orbo are. Is it the church that the people are rushing to? Because it was Jesus the people were rushing to. And are we in a difficult situation? Because the truth is, what Jesus was doing in these passages, what Jesus was doing in his ministry, he was challenging the status quo that made people comfortable and wealthy and above everybody else. And in some ways over 2,000 years, are we not ones, the ones that actually, if the status quo took a tumble, we might be the ones who take the hit. And yet we're the ones who have to be there with the marginalized to give the status quo the nudge it needs to take the tumble. We're in a really precarious place in the church in 2010, particularly on the edge of BT7 and BT9 and all the different things that are going on around us as a church where we minister to here. Now, I know we minister where we live, and I know we minister where we work, but we've still got to be a church, have we not, that becomes the light in this area. The body of Christ that draws the marginalized to himself. And we go into that story of Levi, the tax collector. Now the tax collector, Tom Wright talks about a traffic warden, but I like traffic wardens. I love traffic wardens. And you know why I love traffic wardens? Because I don't park on double yellow lines. And if you do park in double yellow lines, you will love traffic wardens. And double yellow lines are not there to make you annoyed. It's not that people went out and said, Ha! If I put one there, it'll really annoy them. They're there so that traffic can flow. Have you ever come round that corner that you can't get round because somebody's in the double yellow line? I love traffic wardens! Nail them! Take the car away! Smash it up! Put it in a little box so as I can put it in my pocket! so I'm not really with Tom Wright and him using the traffic warden as the person that we're not keen on maybe the drug dealer maybe the person who goes into communities who's from a wealthy scenario and gets kids hooked on drugs so that they need to sell the drugs for them to keep up their addictions maybe something like that but the tax collector was not liked because the tax collector was probably pretty dishonest he was probably putting something in his pocket for himself as we find out from Zacchaeus In the story about Zacchaeus. Um, He was working for probably Herod Antipas who was working for the Romans. So there's a lot of problems there. He was taking money probably from the Gentiles on the borders. So he was unclean because of those connections. The tax collector wasn't somebody that you would have expected Jesus to be drawn to himself. In fact the Levi story is not as exciting as the Zacchaeus story in some way. Because there you have Zacchaeus uh, up that tree. Um, David Bruce used to say he looked like boss hog he reckoned you know out of the um, uh, the dukes of hazard you know that sort of wee fat man with the white suit and the chicken coming out of his mouth and uh, he would have to get up onto that tree to look across the crowds and Jesus comes into Jericho and you can imagine the people saying who is it going to be who's he going to dine with who's he going to have lunch with oh there's a Pharisee here who does really well But uh, there's Jesus going through the crowds. Even the crowds don't let Zacchaeus have a look. And he comes to Zacchaeus and he says, I'm going to have dinner with you. It's the one who you would least expect, the last person in our society that Jesus goes to take for dinner at us. It's a challenge. It's an incredible challenge. The word of God's not easy at this point. It collides with our senses of security and what's handy and all that kind of stuff. Here we have the traitor, the dishonest one. And the Pharisees seem genuinely, as they would be, surprised and understandably offended that Jesus would go and eat with a tax collector and his mates and all the sinners around about. And when it says in the New American Standard, and I I go back, today is a day of confessing my uselessness at languages. Um, But when we were doing Greek uh, we used to have the New American Standard below us because that was the closest we could get to the text that we were translating. So you would go, um, and you would mutter a little bit, and you would stumble this word out that you had under the chair, that you know under your table. So confessions again. The New American Standard is probably closest, and it doesn't. It uses the word recline here, and reclining in that day would have been literally on your left, sort of lying down a wee bit like you know those guys that get the grapes put in their mouth and all that kind of stuff but it would have been intimate it would have been these are the people who we are saying are our people they belong to us we are being intimate with them they are our good friends and here is jesus with this kind of person and we've got to ask ourselves how we're doing today one of the things that comes through in this it seems to me as well is that grace which is what we're seeing here Grace. We see it in the story of the leper. We see it in the man who's put down through the roof. We see it particularly here in the tax collector and this meal that they have. Um, The grace that Jesus shows people is the first thing that happens to their transformation and change. He doesn't ask them to change and then give the grace. Secus. Come down, we're going to eat together. And he brings Zacchaeus into his friendship, into this sense of belonging, into this sense of intimacy, into this world of love and grace. And as a result of being so close to that grace, Zacchaeus repents and changes, as do the vast majority of the people that Jesus meets. He doesn't come and scold them. He doesn't come and do all things to tell them, if you do this, 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 and this, it's this grace that changes things it's grace and grace worked out as it should be worked out in our everyday lives when I was um, moved back here from Dublin Derevoge was one of the last places bombed in the Troubles um, August 94 um, July 94 um, there was a bomb, it was a, mor- uh, a mortar that went from the Catholic Chapmancy across the road from Daravolgi to try and hit the army base that was at the back and no- nobody was in, we were still building at the time and so nobody got hurt in the-, the bomb but we were closed for an extra six months or so and as a result of that when I came back to Belfast I didn't know where to live so they put me down in Adelaide House down in the middle of Belfast, well, that's an education, you should all go and live there for a week um, It was unbelievable, and I had no TV when I was there, but we didn't really need TV. When Janice came over in the evenings, we would look out the window and see the drug deals being done there, and see the prostitutes being picked up there, and see all the stuff that was going on around uh, city centre Belfast. And I remember one morning, literally walking out over uh, a couple or three of the prostitutes that used to hang around the area, and they were sitting on the step of the, the, the flats, and Uh, And I kind of stepped over them. And as I went to walk away, I thought, I'd love to just be able to look back and say, good morning. But as soon as I opened the door, they get a little bit edgy. And uh, I certainly, as a Presbyterian minister, you would understand. Started to walk down towards Church House where my office was at that point. And I was about halfway down when I thought, how wrong is that picture? Because if we look at the stories of Jesus, we find that he was at ease talking to those people and drawing those people in. And yet I'd been almost conditioned to turn away from them. And I wondered about all the discipleship classes I took, that not one of them taught me how to speak to prostitutes. And yet is discipleship not about us following Jesus, doing the things that Jesus did. And again I ask myself, is there something wrong with the picture of our church and how we witness it's wonderful again when Conor comes up and next week I hope that you'll bring we have a whole attic's worth of clothes for him for next week because we're clearing out. But it's great that we're involved in these ministries but are they drawn to us? Are they looking at us on the corner of this street and are they saying that's a place where I know I might find some love. I want to finish with one last story and leave quite a bit out but I'll, I can leave that for another time. One last story. When I was in First Antrim, I've talked you all through my entire ministry today, so let's uh, go back even further. When I was in First Antrim, we had a missionary who was in uh, Jamaica. and uh, She was home one time uh, on furlough, and she said to me, you wouldn't go and see if you could get my brother to come to church? And I said, yeah, sure, where does he, where would I get him? He says, he works down in the chippy, down in the middle of Antrim. So one night I went down, stood line, and it seems to be... Um, The way I dress, and certainly dressed then, I was the last person in the chippy that he thought was his minister. Um, So we chatted for a minute, and then I said, Billy, do you know who I am? And he said, no, I don't. And I said, I'm your minister. He said, oh, really? And I said, would you come to church with me? And he said, no, I can't come to church. And I said, Billy, why can you not come to church? And he said to me, I don't have a suit. And I said, don't don't worry about the suit, Billy. I said, I'll dress like I am now if I'm not preaching and, um, and I'll come down and meet you at the front of the church and I'll walk down with you, I'll sit with you, just come to church he says no, 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 couldn't come to church if you don't have a suit um, a few years later Billy went to church uh, he went to church the first day that he was in prison on a murder charge and the first Sunday he could get he went to church now I look around and I'm thankful that that's not the case here I'm thankful that it's not the case here. But let's not be complacent about other things. Who are the Billys around us in these streets? Maybe not called Billy. Um, But who are they? And what keeps them from coming in this morning? And what do we need to do as a church over these next years to make this a place that by the grace we show draws them to the Jesus that drew them in the first century? And it'll get us into more trouble, I'm sure. But if we're not getting ourselves into trouble, then we're not following Jesus either. So, those are questions to ask. We're out of the building. We're going to be out of the building for a while. We're going to have a building that's going to be fresh and shiny in the sanctuary again. We're probably, over the next number of years, going to have to ask what we do with the halls. We're going to have to ask what we do as a congregation. And we've got to get back and see the people that Jesus drew around him. And we've got to ask ourselves as we carry this vision forward, as we begin to think about how we work in house groups, how we work in mission, how we work in evangelism, how are we going to be this Jesus that was so effective in his day, in our day? And I don't have answers yet. But I know the challenge is there. The inspiration is there. The command is there. Steve, Fitzroy, follow me. Let's pray together. Our God, we pray for those guys like Millie out around us in these streets. And we ask you to show us how we can be Jesus and how we can prevent them from ending up in situations like Billy did. We pray you'll show us tangibly how to bring this grace that we were singing about earlier. How we can be a church of grace, a community of grace right here on University Street. Lord, give us a vision. Lord, challenge us to the core. Lord, make us ready for the changes that you might want us to bring. In Christ's name, amen.